Well, good morning again. It's good to be back. It's good to have Kyle and Pam back. And you got emotional. Presbyterians are not allowed to get emotional. But uh, great to have you back. Great to see you. I was uh, privileged to be here a couple of weeks ago, and we studied Exodus 19 together. Some of you weren't here, and the Lord will forgive you for that. But uh, you were on vacation, and that's good. God has ordained vacations. But we're going to kind of get part two of that today. So I'll have to give a little review in just a moment. But, but let me just throw a word at you. Dilemma. Dilemma. Do you know the word? Dilemma. It could be on the SAT, which will get you into some college of your choice. Dilemma. Uh, predicament. Quandary. Catch-22. Uh, impasse, insoluble soluble problem. It's an insoluble problem to say that word. Uh, Indiana Jones, what, what's the one thing he's afraid of? Snakes. Snakes. So there's a big, ugly black snake over there, and there's a bad guy over there, and he's only got time to take care of one of the problems. That is a dilemma. I mean, here's a dilemma that most married men have faced at some time or other, not me, of course, but uh, your wife buys a new dress and she comes out and presents herself in it. And she says, do you like this dress? Now, right now you realize you're in a dilemma. You can tell the truth and die, (laughs) (laughs) or you can lie and live, assuming you don't like the, the dress. That's a dilemma. Much, much, much more seriously, cancer. Cancer's come into not my body, but my family uh, recently. And there's a dilemma with every cancer patient is, you know, you want to kill the cancer, but you don't want to kill the patient. So the chemotherapy is meant to kill the cancer, but take too much and it could shorten your life. There's a, a medical dilemma. Well, this morning, we're going to look at God's great dilemma. You think, has has anything ever been difficult for God? Only one thing, and that's what we're going to look at uh, this morning. We're going to look at Exodus 34, and if you're not there yet, uh, turn in your Bible or on your phone to Exodus 34, and this this little section of Scripture, we're just going to look at eight verses, uh, contains one of the most important, least known most problematic passages in all the Bible. That's quite a statement, isn't it? But at the heart of our passage is a dilemma, a a dilemma for God. It's as if God ties himself in a knot, and I'm not making that up. He places himself in a dilemma. So with that as a backdrop, let's stand for the reading of God's word. And I'm gonna ask you what I did last week or a few weeks ago. If you could just this is weird to say. If you could just close your Bible uh, and, or not look, no peeking, and hear God's word, but then keep your Bible open because we're going to look at some very specific words here. So here is uh, God's word. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that I wrote on the first tablets, which you broke. <laughs> Be ready by morning and come up in the morning on Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come with you. And let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. And so 
Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord. The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the sins of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head to the earth and worshiped. And church, this is the word of the Lord. Have a seat. Wow. Well, we're going to break this into three paragraphs that can give us little chunks that will make it comprehensible. We're going to look at the preparation in verses 1 to 4, the proclamation in verses 5 to 7, and then finally the prostration in verse 8. But uh, the preparation, uh, our passage begins with Moses being called up yet again on Mount Sinai. And if you're to read the, the account in Exodus, we started it on July 25th. Moses goes up and down, uh, picture a mountain like Lacumbra Peak, he goes up and down seven times, so he's, you know, getting, getting in shape here. Uh, this is a record of the seventh and final journey up the mountain. Now, chronology is important. This is a little review for those of us who weren't here the other day. Israel has been a, a slave people in uh, Egypt for the better part of 400 years. They become a slave people toward the end of that time. We're not sure for how long. The Lord delivers them uh, during Passover the first Passover, and they cross the Red Sea, Exodus chapter 14, and 50 days, 5-0, 50 days after they leave Egypt, they come to the wilderness, which is not a pleasant place, to Kadesh. Uh, they, they come to the, the wilderness, and they encamp before the mountain uh, for the better part of a year. And this begins Moses' many seven-time ascent up the mountain. Uh, last time we looked at the first three ascents and descents on the mountain, and we looked at that in Exodus 19. And in that third ascent, that's where we, we camped out, uh, we, we saw the terrible, terrifying holiness of God. The people become aware that this God is not someone to be trifled with. And God shows up on the mountain in fire and smoke, and the mountain trembles, and Moses trembles, and they tremble, and everyone trembles. And when it's over, they say, hey, we don't ever want to see that again. <laughs> that once was enough. And what they're learning is uh, that the holiness of God is not a light matter. A couple of years ago, I was in Barstow. No, not Barstow. Uh, Bishop. I knew it started with a B. Who cares? But I, I was in Bishop getting some gas for our car. We were going, coming home from Mammoth. And about eight guys from a motorcycle gang came in called the Mongols. Have you ever heard of the Mongols? 
I am told, I had just read a book about the Mongols, which tells you a little bit about me, but uh, they make the Hell's Angels look like choir boys. I mean, just bad dudes. But they all came in on their Harleys and they looked like nice guys. And I wanted to go up and say hello. But I just read this book and I thought, uh -uh, I think I'll just fill my car up and just get out of here. And I did. I, I missed that opportunity because of their reputation. Well, that's <laughs> times 10 million is what's going on here. The, the Israel sees something of the holiness of God and they say, no more. There is a huge object lesson for us in this room right here in the passage, by the way. You who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose it's evil, great. We just sang it. Go to Mount Sinai. In the evangelical world, we kind of worship a user-friendly, easygoing, buddy kind of God. Back when there were music videos, when MTV was coming out, there were Christian music videos, and you would, I would watch a few Christian music videos, and you didn't know if the artist was singing about her boyfriend or about the Lord himself. God is just our friend. Well, Moses ascends Mount Sinai. The people stay in the camp and they tremble and they say, no more, Moses. On the fifth visit, on the fifth visit, Moses goes up with Joshua with tablets of stone that God has provided and they stay there 40 days. It takes God a long time to speak. But finally, he comes down with the tablets. And chronologically, the next thing that happens, it's kind of difficult as you read through Exodus, but the next thing that happens, happens in Exodus 32. And in Exodus 32, the people take off their earrings, they take off their bracelets, they, they bring out the gold from their tents, and they say to Aaron, melt this down and make us a calf, a golden calf, so that we can be like the, God, uh, like the people of the, of the land where we're going. And Aaron does this and he holds up some golden calf and he says to the people, behold your God. Or you could translate that from the Hebrew, behold your gods. It's a statement about the future. We worshiped Yahweh in Egypt. We're going to worship the Baal gods when we go into the land of Canaan. Well, Yahweh is incensed and he wants to destroy his people because they've done the one thing that he'd forbidden them to do. There is no atonement for this sin. Matter of fact, God was giving the land of the Canaanites to the Israelites because of the idolatry of all those people that lived there. Now his people themselves have committed the same sin. And so, read this this afternoon if you haven't read it in a while. Moses, four different times, intercedes for the people. And Moses says, if you're going to kill them, kill me. No, at one point, Yahweh says, well, I, I won't kill them, but I'm not going with you. To which Moses says, if you're not going to go with us, don't take me. I don't want to go. Well, that's where our passage begins. When we get to Exodus 34, which we just heard, seven, the seventh time up the mountain, Moses this time has to cut his own tablets, the first time God did that. He's to go early in the morning, he's to go alone, no Joshua to accompany him. No one is to be seen on the mountain, the same thing we saw in Exodus 19 where there's this, the holiness of God creates distance. 
And Moses goes up as the Lord had commanded him. Notice this, Moses goes up in God's way according to God's instructions to God's location. Really important. Moses is not finding God in his own way. So often again in the evangelical church, we are led to believe that we can find God in our way, on our terms, in, on our time schedule, as if God is waiting for our beck and call. Moses goes according to the instructions of the Lord. Sometimes we talk about accepting Jesus into our lives. You've heard that, haven't you? As if we're doing him a favor? Well, not in Exodus 34. And we make our own preparations and we want to meet God on our terms, and what we learn here is if we're going to meet him, ultimately we're going to meet him on his terms, in his timing, in his place, in his way. So Moses is prepared. The second paragraph, verses 5 to 7, the, the proclamation. Moses goes where? What's it say? Very clear, a couple of times. He goes to the top of the mountain. Uh, he goes as far as he can go. He can go no farther. That's where the Lord had told him to go. Uh, years ago, Lisa and I were climbing a mountain in Glacier National Park. Anyone been to Glacier? It's like the best place in the world is Glacier. But if you want a tour guide, come get me and I'll t help you. But we were backpacking out there and we climbed a mountain called Mount Finch. And it had a couple of scary moves. and We didn't have any equipment and it was kind of emotional. We're very tired and... And uh, matter of fact, one of the moves was dicey enough. I thought, well, at least Lisa won't follow me up this. And then I turned around and there she is. <laughs> and it's windy and it's scary and we're tired. And, and uh, I said, Lisa, we made it. We're at the top. And, you know, with all the emotion that comes with that, she said, how do you know you're at the top? <laughs> I said, well, there's nowhere else to go. You know, this is as far as we can go. And, and we looked around and we got the heck out of there. Moses cannot go any farther, but... Look what happens. It's God who descends to him. Again, I think there's a lesson in this for us. We don't have to close the gap between ourselves and God. Jonathan Edwards said, put yourself in the place of allurement. Put yourself in the place where you will be allured by God. Moses goes to the top of the mountain. He's ready. And God comes down. We don't need to close the gap ourselves. God will come down when we put ourselves where he wants us to be. Now, let me ask a question here. Uh, this will not be on the test tomorrow. Do you know why Moses is up here for the seventh time? Do you know why? I mean, that's a lot of journeys up and down. Why is he here the seventh time? Well, in the, the chapter before, verse 18 of chapter 33, Moses blurts out to God, show me your glory. Wow, what a request. God says to him, you can't see my glory or you will die. <laughs> you don't know what you're asking for, Moses. You see my glory and you're going to be toast. It, that's in the Hebrew, the toast part. But, God says... I'll give you a glimpse of my backside, that's in the Bible, and I'll pass by. You can get a peek. Now, what's fascinating about the passage we just looked at, 
When Moses tells the story, assuming mosaic authorship of this book, which I do, when Moses tells the story, get this, this is so important. Moses doesn't describe what he saw, does he? He talks about what he heard, what God said. We worship a God who speaks, and if we want to see his glory, if we want to see his face, we will, we will see that most splendidly in the word in which he has spoken, which he's finally spoken in a person, in the person of Jesus Christ. So look at verse 6 in your text. Yahweh, that's what the Lord is. Yahweh, that's the covenant name of God. Yahweh passed before him, and, and now you're getting ready, and it was so bright that Moses had to shield his face. No, Yahweh passed before him, and what? He, say it for me, he proclaimed. He proclaimed what? He proclaimed the name of the Lord. Now, these verses testify to God's greatest problem. He descends, he stands with Moses, he passes before Moses, he proclaims. What does he proclaim? Think about it. Look at, look at those verses, verses uh, 6 and 7. On the one hand, God proclaims the glory of his loving kindness, the wealth of his grace, the, the magnitude of his forgiveness, the beauty of his holiness. He proclaims that, but on the other hand, it's right there, the reality of his justice, the consistency of his character, the uprightness of his nature. Now look at verse 7 if you've got a pen, a pencil, and you don't mind marking your Bibles, get ready to circle what is perhaps the most delicate and important word in all the Bible about God. Yeah, I really said that. Kind of superlative, isn't it? But, but I, want you, I want you to see what is perhaps the most delicate and important word in all the Bible about God. Look at it right in the middle of verse 7. It's the word, but. Can you say that with me? Maybe a little louder? Yeah. Do you see God's dilemma? God is the God who forgives, but he's the God who doesn't forgive. That's what it says. I forgive iniquity, transgression, sin, but I never clear the guilty. I don't forgive guilty people. You see the dilemma? So, 2019 is a great year for uh, 50th anniversaries. Can you just give me one that we've had recently? Woodstock, moon landing, the uh, haunted mansion at Disneyland. <laughs> Another more dark anniversary, the 50th anniversary of the Manson murders in Los Angeles. Charlie Manson had his little gang. They did the Tate killings and the LaBianca killings. And about six months later, as I recall, he was arrested. He was tried. And he was convicted, on, I think, on all counts. And uh, he was given a death sentence at the time. That was later commuted to life in prison. And uh, after that, uh, Manson was, uh, he died in prison a couple of years ago. Now, picture with me, a little, let's just go have a little fantasy in our minds. Picture with me if, if Charles Manson was convicted on all counts and he's supposed to be sentenced to death, but let's just imagine if the judge had said to him, you know, Charlie, you're a good-looking guy. If you just get a haircut, 
and I've come to like you during these proceedings, and uh, you've been in prison a lot during your life, and I think if you got out, you'd probably do a lot better. I I am going to uh, set you free. Uh, Yes, you're guilty, but time served. You're, You're free to go today. What would you think, what would you have thought of that judge? It's really clear, isn't it? You would have thought this is a corrupt judge who doesn't care about justice. The entire nation has violated the covenant that they've made with God in the most egregious way possible. What is God to do? How can God forgive sinners and not forgive sinners at the same time being true to the sheer love of his character, to his mercy, to his forgiveness, and at the same time be the just God that he is? Now hang with me here because we're going to go a little bit deep. One biblical answer that is partial is that God forgives repentant sinners. Okay, you with me? So Nahum, Habakkuk, the book of Joel, they all quote these verses to the effect that if we repent, God will forgive us. Joel chapter 3, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Here it comes, return to the Lord, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. That comes right out of our passage. God uh, forgives repentant sinners. And he uh, forgives children of repentant sinners. It's kind of a troubling passage when God says he's going to visit the sins of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. It almost sounds like they're being punished for their dad's sins. Uh, Sin just a little segue here, sin from parent to child is not a DNA gene code that is handed down. It's more like a disease that is caught. And parents who are enmeshed in a life of sin tend, the children tend to catch that disease and suffer for their own sins. But one partial answer, biblical answer, is that God forgives repentant sinners. Now, There are two mistakes that you and I can make with regard to the sin in our lives. Number one, we can see our sin as a trifling matter. As we just sang, we can take sin lightly. It's no big deal. At the other extreme, and there's probably people in this room on both sides of this, some of us will see our sin as so heavy and so weighty that surely God could never forgive us. Maybe he can forgive those other people at Christ Presbyterian Church, but not me. If we take our sin lightly, we will never repent because we don't think there's much to repent of. Conversely, if we're haunted by our past, maybe as recently as our past this morning, well, either way, we need to go to the mountain and see the holiness of God with Moses and see God's glory. We need to submit whatever we're feeling and whatever we're sensing. We need to submit that to God and see his greatness His holiness, his love, his mercy, and his judgment all at the same time. 
God's love. Hear this. God's love. I, I, I read about Yosemite Falls this year, and we had one of the biggest snow packs ever in the Sierras in recorded history, and I guess Yosemite Falls is gushing like crazy. I wish I could go there. And it's just coming and coming and coming. God's love is like that. There's just, it's just endless. It just gushes out. But his justice is like the gravity that pulls the water to the valley floor. And thus, the dilemma. If you think about it, those who repent are still guilty, are they not? I mean, if I'm a thief and I repent, I'm still a thief. If I borrow your car and I drive it too fast and I wrap it around a telephone pole and your car is ruined and I say, I'm so sorry, I repent, your car is still ruined, right? So my repentance doesn't solve God's dilemma. I may be sorry for my sin, but I am still sullied by my sin. And the Bible tells us God never clears the guilty. God tells us that. So this week, I guess a little over a week ago, Joseph Epstein took his own life in prison. And the nation has been kind of riveted by this story because it is thought that he... uh, was involved in sex trafficking and, and abused many, many young women. And we wanted him to face a court of human justice. But let's pretend that he was still alive and he did face a court of human justice and, and he was pronounced guilty and sentenced to 440 years of prison. Well, he was 67 years old when he died. So how long is he going to be in prison? Maybe 10 years, 20 years, 30 years? And we would have had the sense collectively that human justice has its limits. And it does. But as Christians, we could take solace in the fact that Joseph Epstein, Jeffrey Epstein, would face the divine court of justice. And one day, he will stand before a holy God. He will not evade God's justice. And that can be comforting. But then we think, wait a minute. I will not evade God's justice. Romans 14 verse 10 says, we all will stand before the judgment seat of God. Every person, every young person in this room, every old person in this room, every one of us, we're not Jeffrey Epstein, but we stand guilty before God, and one day we will have to give an account of that. We will face him in all of his glory, in all of his character. Chapter 34 of Exodus, verses 6 and 7, contain the central riddle of the whole Bible, God's love, his tenderness, his eagerness to forgive on one side, and his justice on the other. Now, let me ask you, do you know how God wiggled out of his own dilemma? I just said that, didn't I? Do you know how God wiggled out of his dilemma? The answer is he didn't wiggle. God did not wiggle out of his dilemma, and I think so many believers miss this. God did not do what we do. Somebody in this room is going to offend somebody else in this room before we get in our cars and go home. It's going to happen. You're going to say something, and then you're going to go home, and you're going to lay down on the couch, and you're going to say, oh, I shouldn't have said that. 
And if you're wise, you'll call your friend and say, you know, Frank, I'm so sorry I said that. That was a dumb thing to say. Would you forgive me? And Frank is going to say to you, I don't even remember it, but of course I forgive you. Right? Anybody in here named Frank? <laughs> and that, that's the way we interact with each other. We, we, we offend and we forgive. And we say, I don't worry about it. We're all good. God did not, and he could not do that because of his holy character. So how does he get out of this dilemma? God bore his own justice in himself. Jesus, the second person of the triune God who's always existed in eternal happiness with the Father and the Spirit, that one became one of us and became the bearer of our iniquity. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and we are healed. If you ever struggle with the notion of being assured of your salvation, know this, God did not grant you a mulligan. The debt was paid in full at the cross. And I just want to ask, have you embraced, are you embracing God's solution to his own dilemma. God made him who had no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become in him the righteousness of God. Do you want to see God? Do you want to see him? This is the mountain where you will meet him, not Sinai, which also goes by the name Horeb. No, not there. Golgotha. Calvary. That's where you'll see the glory of God. That's where you will meet him. And you have to come not with tablets of stone in your hand as Moses went. You have to come with nothing. And as long as your hands are full of something and you're saying, well, Lord, this is what I offer you, you can't get to the top of the mountain. It won't work. You have to come empty-handed. So look at that last verse. Wow, the prostration. I like the way the NLT kind of interprets this. Moses immediately threw himself to the ground and worshiped. This is not some polite Bow, no, Moses is, is sprawled on the ground. He has seen something of the glory of God. He gets more than he bargained for. He falls on his face and worships. And you know what happens. Forty days later, he comes down, and he doesn't even know it, but his face is aglow because of what he's seen. So much so that his brother Aaron is terrified and the people are terrified and Moses has to veil his face so that they don't see it. Now we understand what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. Moses saw something of the glory of God. His face was changed. Do you know something? We are invited, you and I, we are invited to gaze at the glory of God, to look in his face, in the person of Christ, and we will be changed. It's in the Bible. 
When we come and when we look, John says the word became flesh and we have beheld his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. Paul then says, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Church, look and keep looking and let the work and the glory of Christ penetrate, penetrate your life and let it show on your face. With all the suffering and all the stuff of this life and all the failures that we experience day by day, let the glory of Christ penetrate and then show forth. I hope that everything I've said comes down to one little point and it is this, that we worship a God who is desperate to forgive He's desperate to forgive all who will come to him in faith. So desperate, in fact, that he solved his own dilemma by dying our death and bearing our cross so that we could know Christ. Is that good news? Lord Jesus, what do we say as we look at this other mountain, the mountain of Golgotha? We say, thank you and praise you. Thank you for what you've done. And as your people, may we be those who are transformed by this visage, by this sight of your glory. For any in this room who've yet to bow their knee to you, for young people, for old people, for everybody in between, Lord, I pray the, the goodness and the greatness of your grace would be so attractive that we would confess our sins and rejoice that we have a Savior. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus because of his glory. And God's people said, amen.